10 years ago, the entrepreneur and lawyer, Cristobal Perdomo, decided to take a risk on those who risk it all. That's when he became the co-founder and general partner of Wolof. The Latin American VC firm has invested in over 30 companies since 2013. Five unicorns came out of this portfolio, Jeeves, Kavak, Confio, Loft, and Newbank. Today, Cristobal and I talk about his entrepreneurial mindset since the age of 17 and how he moved from business development to VC. He shared some great insights on how to pick the right company and founder to invest in and the importance of teamwork. Enjoy. My name is Brian Reckworth, and this is Latitude Podcast. Vamos Latam. Pleasure to, to have you on. I, uh, you know, when I when I think back to, I, I've known you for a while because we, we were actually competitors in some capacity as we were reflecting over that incredible lunch that you, you know, you took me to in, uh, in Lomas here in Mexico City, a uh, Greek restaurant. I still think about it. Uh, that fish was incredible. So many good restaurants in Mexico City. But, you know, we had a chance to reflect a little bit about those different days, early days as an operator. But I want to go back before that a little bit and and talk about your kind of early first venture, because I think you were just 17. And I want, to, I want you to share a little bit about the opportunity that, you know, you envisioned then and with what you know now, maybe what you've done differently uh, in that particular initiative. So give give the audience a little context to that and, and then we'll just dive right into the interview. So my first venture was buying video game arcade machines, you know, the Pac-Mans and the Street Fighters, and putting them in drugstores and just collecting money and paying some revenue sharing with the, the drugstore, right? Uh, <laughs> it was funny because I never thought about asking people for money, so I only paid for what I could uh, actually pay myself, right? So it would have been good to think about some investors. And doing several ventures after that, that's when I saw that you needed all their capital, right? And there was th- this thing called venture capital outside of Latin America, that helped people that had an idea but didn't have the money. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know if I could have done anything different when I, when I started, but it definitely was an insight into what I do now. It's funny, I, I found a new, I've rediscovered Pac-Man recently. I have a, a, a nine-year-old son now, so it's like, I got this little, like, remote, you know, like, small little game, <laughs> little Pac-Man game. And so, uh, you know, re- reliving my some of my childhood. So it's you got that early stages, you know, that early experience as an entrepreneur, at just 17 and you had that, you know, that experience. And you've said before that to be an entrepreneur, you need to have this burning desire for it. You know, and then you've been part of other ventures and, you know, had a, a career at a handful of other startups. And you kind of switched in from this legal career back to this kind of tech entrepreneurship career. Talk about your eureka moment where you're studying law and then all of a sudden you're and now you're working in venture and you worked as an operator. So share with me kind of how that worked out in your mind. So the first thing is why I got into law, right? Uh, I think one thing, you, you know, Latin America has this terrible uh, system in which you have to decide what you're going to study from day one, right? You go into architecture, you go into biology, you go into whatever you want to go. So I didn't want to, I didn't know what I was going to go into. I liked math a lot. So I thought that if I went to something math related, I would end up like, like the guy from the Pi movie. I don't know if you saw it, where he becomes obsessed with Pi and he's the number everywhere. So I, I thought that law would be a great compliment, right? Because it would be the other extreme, right? It would get me to work for other things. Uh, and, and also, I had seen too many Hollywood movies, right? Where the CEO was a lawyer and lawyers were these heroes that came in and saved the day. Uh, that doesn't happen in real life. And I found that like 
two weeks into my program. So I stuck with it. I worked as a lawyer, always thinking that at some point I'm going to change to business. But once I tried to change the business, in Latin America at that time, it was almost impossible, right? They would always send you to the legal department of some company. Like I remember interviewing for Goldman Sachs for a private banking position. They said, oh, you're great, but we want you to go to the legal department. It's like, no, <laughs> I don't want to do that. So that was around 96, 97. And you remember the, the internet boom where everything was magazines, programs, day trading, seminars, everything. And it always came back to venture capital. And that's going back to my entrepreneurial days, it just reflected on this thing about, oh, you mean you can get money from others to help you launch something? That seems great. I got to do that. So I went to business school with the idea that I was going to do PC in 2000. <laughs> uh, I think they're still laughing at me at the Career Services Center saying, oh, yeah, you're going to go into PC, right? <laughs> I thought they were good at like maybe like, like IBM, right? Uh, so that, re- that died off pretty quickly. And I kept it at the back of my mind. But I never really pursued it right? until I ended up having to start my own fund because there were no opportunities. And before that, I mean, you ha- you, you worked in a handful of other. You know, I I kind of made reference to us competing because you you worked at a, a you know a company that we ended up competing with, which was Navent uh, in the you know the prop tech space. Uh, you know, based in Argentina, but had a presence all over Latin America, and you ran you know a lot of the Mexico operations. Um, and then from there, you ended up embarking on this this VC world. So it sounds like you had clarity. Of that idea, you know, twenty plus years ago, and then you did you decide to get operating experience before that, uh, or what was the the thought process? Why didn't you move in sooner to the VC? I wish I'd been as methodical as you think about it. But uh, like I said, I just parked it at some part of my brain. Like someday, VC something I would like to pursue. And then I got, I moved to Argentina. I started off with Grupalia, which we sold off to Page Urbano, then Navent, and while at Navent, I sort of had forgotten about doing VC. But we had as our main shareholder, Tiger, right? And at one board meeting at Tiger, you know, we were doing terrible in Brazil. You, you were bidding us badly, right? Uh, it was a very hard market, very competitive, you know, a lot of costs, uh, a lot of people with a lot of money. And we're doing great as Brazil. Like we were growing 3x in Peru, Argentina, Colombia, uh, Mexico, Ecuador. But the Tiger guys only cared about Brazil, and I was just mystified by it. why do they care about somewhere we're losing like five zero, and they don't care about the other that are profitable. We have Frosted Evita. so I said there's got to be something in VC outside of Brazil, right? And if you put together all of outside Brazil, there's something relevant there. So I started thinking about how do you go about creating a fund, and it took us almost three years to figure out what a fund is. As you know, it's a pretty opaque business where there's not a lot of insight. So we did have a clear vision that there was something to do in Spanish-speaking Latam that wasn't being addressed by other funds, which were very focused on Brazil. And that was the genesis of it. You mentioned something about, you know, you said you'd wish you'd been, you know, you kind of making a self-deprecating joke about, uh, you know, being systematic in your decision-making. <laughs> and it was more kind of, it sounds like it was more just like opportunistic and you kind of stumbled on these opportunities. Do you think the best entrepreneurs are hyper-systematic with deciding what the opportunities that they should tackle, or do you think the best entrepreneurs kind of they think unfold based on a series of events that happen, and then they, you know, they end up. What, what do you and your pattern recognition, having now seen you know hundreds, if not thousands, of deals, and you look at you know you invest in some great entrepreneurs. Do you think it's a more systematic approach, or do you think it's more of a serendipitous kind of thing that you come across? That is a great question. I think 
the systematic approach works, but doesn't usually work for VC investments. Right? I think most systematic entrepreneurs are going to have a great lifestyle business, but it's hard to think of something exponential. I think the the best VC-backed entrepreneurs, they start off with a lot of passion, and they have this 15-20% of going analytically about it and just fine-tuning their idea. Right? So, so the initial jumpstart is really passion and, and something they, they love. But really getting that to where they want to work with, I think that takes the systematic part and the analytical part. Uh, so I think it's a mix. Mostly heart, but a lot of smarts as well. You said that you had this idea of this, this getting involved in venture capital 20 plus years ago, and definitely the ecosystem wasn't ready for it. You know, what is it about the VC ecosystem or like being an investor attracted you? Like, what, what do you like about it? That's a good question. So I think basically because I ran out of ideas as an entrepreneur, right? So I couldn't be an entrepreneur anymore because I didn't have any more ideas. So I thought I might, I might as well help someone. And also, uh, I think being a VC at the stage in, in my life where I was at, I was 35, 40 years old. So I think it's a different kind of energy and a different kind of reflection being an entrepreneur than being a VC, right? A VC is more laid back. You know, it's you're not in control. You have to be able to trust others. You have to be able to delegate. And I think it, I didn't have that when I was younger. Right? I think that I have that now. And I think the impact of being a VC is very different than the impact of being an entrepreneur. It's not better or or, or worse. It's just different. Right? Uh, and I also discovered that as I grew older, I preferred more and more learning about different things than being very focused on one thing. And as an entrepreneur, you have to be blindsided by just one thing, right? You have to completely have total focus on one thing. And I don't have that anymore. Yeah, the hyper-focus is what unlocks value as a founder. Hey there. Are you learning some good lessons in this episode? I hope so. The founders and angel investors we have on our fellowship programs learn things like this throughout the entire experience. In the Explore Fellowship, we help you kick off your next big idea. With the Angel Fellowship, you can expand your impact as a startup investor. Be sure to check out latitude.com to find out how to apply for our fellowship programs. Now let's get back to the episode. Thanks a lot. So talking about venture capital, and I'm curious to, because I know that I met, I think, Eric at a Kazakh um, kind of offsite retreat at Stanford. We were, uh, were you there too? I'm trying to remind me. I'm trying to remember. No, no. We, we, I wasn't, but just, Eric was there. Yeah. Yeah, so Eric was there, your 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 business partner, uh, other you know other GP of the fund, and I remember meeting him, you know, and he he had you know worked in kind of you know related to to Meli. I think he'd worked at Meli right um, in those in those early mm-hmm. days, and that's probably his connection with Hernan and Nico. And I remember at the time you guys were Jaguar, uh, and then you you know did a name change name change. Tell me more about where the name Wolof came from and you know, why the name change and, and give us some context there, because I don't know if I've ever asked you that question. And I, I remember when you made the transition and it's hard to make a transition with a name, right? Because I was, yeah. I was, I was remembered you guys, the Jaguar guys. And now, you know, you've successfully made that jump in my mind uh, into wall off, but it's a challenge. And so what was the impetus for making the name change? And then what does wall off represent? So, so the first thing was getting Jaguar as a name and Jaguar was something that we, gave a lot of thought into, because Jaguar is a native feline to the Americas. Its presence goes from the southern U.S. to the northern Argentina, so it's perfect Latin America. It's an apex predator, 
So Jaguar beats everything. If it's crocodiles, if it's eagles, it, it doesn't care, right? It just kills. <laughs> but again, it's an it's a predator that's known for balancing ecosystems. So a jaguar doesn't kill for the art of killing. It just kills to eat, right? So that's also... So we like that a lot. Uh, that was the idea for Jaguar. We started going with Jaguar in 2013. And the problem was that Jaguar is the same name for a lot of funds around the world. You have private equity funds, you have real estate funds, you have growth capital funds, you have infrastructure funds, you have everything. So there was some confusion when we saw some LPs as they were thinking they were going to speak with an energy fund. They were asking us about our deep sea platform strategy. And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> what do you mean platform? Do you mean Facebook or what? Right? Uh, so that didn't work. Uh, and then Jaguar being a noun is really hard to trademark. There's so much, uh, so that so we, it, we came to realize that we had to change the name, right? That that was the, the the main thing, and then the second part was what do we change it to, right? So one thing we had thought about was uh, the other animal we really like was wolves. Right? Wolves are similar to jaguars in their predators, but they have some things that we liked a lot better than the jaguar. And, and at one point we thought, oh, I think we screwed up with jaguar. We should be in wolf in the beginning. The the first thing is that jaguar wolves are the most social predators in the world, right? They're always attacking packs. They always live in packs. They're super faithful. Uh, you have both alpha males and alpha females, which is something rare in the animal kingdom, right? Usually lions, m- most predators have only male uh, alphas. And, uh, and so it was very clear that wolf would be a great name, right? But then we're going to the same thing about Jower. It's like, <laughs> tomorrow's going to be a wolf, energy or wolf, whatever, and or lobo or whatever. So, uh, we, we hired a, a design agency and they came up with different works on the on the word itself. And a wildlife is wolf in Luxembourgish, which we have nothing to do with Luxembourg. But it's, a, it's a rare enough dialect or language, I don't know what, what it is, that it was available for trademarking everywhere, right? You could have the URL, you could have the, the trademark, you have the everything. And uh, so we changed to wolf. And one thing we did right, I think, is that from the day we changed to Wolf, we've never talked about the other name. And so now it's it's very clear that we're Wolf and we're not Jawar. So that's a fascinating, you know, kind of story. And it, it you really have to create a distinction for your brand, right? You've got to have a, a name that, and it's hard to create something from scratch. There's a great um, article from Rich Barton, who was the founder of Zillow, Glassdoor, Expedia, you know, these are all names that are kind of created, right? They're all, none of those are actual words. And he has this very interesting uh, concept where he, he, when you're creating a new name, instead of a generic word, uh, or excuse me, instead of a word that like is a, you know, like Jaguar or, you know, a, a name of something already that's pre-established, he likes to ha- follow these, these guides where it's high point Scrabble letters. So, you know, if you can think, you know, W is probably a high point, you know, Scrabble letter um, because they're, you know, rarely, you know, use those letters when we, when we, you know, we, we read people, see them and they jump out at us and they stick in our heads. Um, he likes X's and Z's, uh, hence the Expedia, Zillow, um, and then two syllable names. So Wolof is two syllables. So if you, you know, if you think of the, the biggest brands in the world, they tend to have fewer syllables and so having a really long name uh, is, you know, not, doesn't help. He also likes homonyms, which Apple, Amazon are examples of that. Uh, palindromes, which, you know, you know, there's a handful of those, Kodak, Xerox, you know, Google. Uh, anyways, and then words that also can easily be turned into 
and to, you know, you know, be Googled or Instagrammed um, or maybe TikToked in these days. So uh, it, it's, it's cool to like look back at that framework and like you actually, you fit well into that category in terms of, of naming. Um, what was the biggest challenge in, in, in that process of, of that transition of getting people to kind of remember the name? And would you, would you in, re- in retrospect, would you say that it's been a successful process? I, I think there's, there's another antecedent, uh, another uh, fund that changed its name in the last few years. I'm not going to say the name just to, because it, they didn't did a, do a great job, right? So to this day, four years after, they're still referred to themselves between parentheses with the old name, right? So we yeah. knew what not to do, right? That, that, that was our, our starting point, which a lot of times is more helpful to know. Rip the Band-Aid off. Rip the Band-Aid exactly. off. What not to do than, than to know what to do, right? So uh, I think with that background, we also took a long time to do it. We started planning it almost a year before. So it was very easy for us that the day we, we did it, we had everything ready. We had the, the website, we have the name, we had the logo, we had everything. And like I said, the, the most important thing is we never talked about the other name again. So that just, for better or for worse, we might have lost a few people in the, in, in the transition, but they're there, right? So, so I think we, it, was, it was a great job. Yeah, it's important to really just like make that, make that move and not be kind of half pregnant there. Like, you know, you've got to just got to make the decision and kind of, you know. Burn um, the ships. You know, yeah, exactly. Burn the ships and just, you know, you're going to have to accept some things won't be perfect. Even with the email, right? It's just something stupid. But so we, we kept the Jaguar email going for almost six months. And I think from month one, we said, please stop writing here because next month we're going to take it off, right? People yeah. still kept writing there, right? So one day we said, you know, that's enough. We're taking yeah. it out. So we took it out. And I don't know, we might have lost some, some communications there, but that's what it is. Yeah, no, you got it. You got to make that, make that move. Well, let's talk briefly about your, your investment thesis at Wolof and you know, how did you arrive at the investment thesis in which, talk about stage, check size, preferred sector, geography, just to give everyone a, a bit of an overview. I, I think I'm starting to see a pattern here, but we never got around thinking about an investment thesis. We now have one because we know we do what we do, right? <laughs> we never sat down and thought, thought it was going to be our investment thesis. Uh, I think the only thing we started off knowing what that we'd want to do was invest in early stage. I think that was very clear for us that that's where we could have the most impact that's where we, our money would be most meaningful. And also that's where our experience would be more, more relevant. So aside from that, but then early stage, as you know, can mean anything, right? Early stage for a PE fund may be something $20 million. Uh, for us, it's maybe a million-dollar investment. So we've defined our, our thesis as investing in companies that are raising between $2 and $8 million, where we see a path to a 20x, and in which the Spanish-speaking Latin market is going to be very relevant. Right? That, that, enc- that sort of encompasses what we do. Uh, we have companies that are invested in the U.S., Brazil, but for which the Latin American market is very relevant. So that, that's where we, we, we get off, right? You can call it Series A, C, Series B, Series C, we don't care. As long as it fits this pattern, we're, we're happy looking at it. Yeah, I mean, you've done some later stage investments. You know, you bought some, you know, some new bank stock, which was a smart, uh, you know, investment and you know you've you've invested in a handful of other companies that have become you know become unicorns like you know Jeeves, Kavak, you know Confio uh, to name a few talk a, a little bit more about the process and you know if, if if I'm a founder listening right now and I'm having conversations with Wolof or I'm about to approach you what what can I expect as a founder and 
you know, what have you learned about the process over the years that you've tried to improve to make it more efficient? Talk a little bit more in the nuts and bolts of, you know, how sure. as a firm you look at companies. So the first thing is, I wouldn't try doing a cold email. <laughs> uh, we've done one cold email investment in our whole history. And I don't think we're going to repeat that, right? Uh, so any way you can get some sort of warm introduction, look for it, right? If you're not doing that, I mean, if you, there's no other choice to a cold email, but just realize that the chances are very, very low, right? Uh, the way we work is once we get information from an investor, from, from, from a founder, we schedule a call. It's usually a one hour call. We do GP calls separately, right? And the idea here is to not be biased by groupthink. Once we're in a call with someone else and you see even a small nod and you say, oh, maybe they're liking the company and I'm not, why I'm not liking it, right? So we try to do this separately. That first call, we ask for some information like a PNL, some KPIs, and we'll do an analysis, right? If after the call, the analysis, we like it, you'll speak to the other GP. And after that, we'll give you a, a, a response in less than a week. So usually we try to commit to investments within two weeks. So it's really, really fast. Uh, usually the length depends a lot more on getting the information from the entrepreneur, right? Because some of them have the PNL ready, some of them take a month and a half to get the information. So it's more on the on the entrepreneur side to be to be ready or not. Do you have any data in the last quarter of volume, deal volume? How are you pre- projecting? What what is your how are you anticipating the kind of the volume of potential investment opportunities? Are you seeing a slowdown in the number of companies that are pitching to you? What is your overall kind of you know sentiment for twenty twenty three? So. Going to 2022, right? So 2022 was, you know, going gangbusters for the first two, three months, right? Then April saw sort of a drop down, uh, but still pretty active. And then I think the biggest drop down was between September and November, right? Like that was when you saw the, the list activity. I think what didn't happen last, and, and tell me if you saw the same thing. What we saw, what we didn't see last year was a lot of companies coming usually at a seed or a Series A, very much anchored on the last valuation, right? So they were raising at a very high multiple. Uh, and the, the reason for that was that they had raised at a previous high alt- multiple, right? So there was no reason for it to be. We started seeing in December a couple of companies approach us saying, you know, we're doing a flat round or even a down round, which you hadn't seen happen in 2022. So I think we're going to see a lot more of that in 2023. And also the new, the new entrepreneurs, right? I, I think new entrepreneurs are going to be somewhat slowed down because people are a little bit afraid of taking, making a jump, right? From having some steady income and living a good job to do this. But I see, I think we're going to see a lot more activity from the previous founders that have raised some money and they're going back to market, realizing they have to bite the bullet and, and get a lot of valuation. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very humbling thing to have to go to market and be in a different environment. And I think founders have trouble making the mental leap that, you know, things have changed. I think that probably that is starting, reality is starting to set in and that that's probably, you know, there, there's so much like media attention and reporting and, you know, data to kind of highlight why why that's the case. And if you're just, you know, looking at public market comps uh, is something that you know, gives a bit of uh, numerical reasoning. I want to talk a little bit more about, you know, so, so the fund, give us the timeline. When did you raise your first fund? Where, you know, where are you today? And, you know, kind of talk more about 
AUM and and your future plans for fundraising? So the first fund, this idea for for doing our first fund came in late 2012. Late, late, sorry, yeah, late, late 2012. So we started thinking about the fund in 2013. We went to market in the middle of 2013, and it took us about a year and a half to get the first commitment. <laughs> and so it took us end to end maybe two years, and then. Once we had the, the first commitment, we left the fund open for two years. So it was almost like a three and a half year uh, journey. Super humbling, as you will know, <laughs> raising a fund is one of the most humbling experiences you're going to have. Uh, when we wanted to raise 20 million, we ended up raising nine and just had to stop because we couldn't, you know, wait more any longer. That was 2014 was the first close. Then the second fund, it was a bit faster. So we did that. That fund we closed in 2019. I was in the final close one year later. But that also took us maybe a year and a half, two years to close. Right? And that was, we tried to raise 50 million and we raised 35, out of which 12 was the Argentine government, which we gave back because it was just not worth having an LP like that. And so we ended up being a $23 million fund. And then this fund, so there were a lot of lessons doing the fundraising in fund, fund one and fund two, right? And in fund three, we we went kamikaze, right? In the sense that we said, you know, we're gonna set a hard deadline. And if we raise a million dollars or we raise 30, that's fine, right? But we're not gonna delay this like always because as you know, the biggest problem is getting LPs to commit. Right? Like nobody wants to commit first. It's like, tell me the last day you need my commitment, I'll be happy to do it. So and thankfully it coincided with a change of name. So it was a great excuse to reconnect with a lot of folks, telling me them about the name change, what we're doing now, and we're raising a new fund. So that fund we raised in four months. And we did a first close last year for 75 million. And we're doing a final close uh, in March. Uh, so we, we tried to raise 100 million. So 75, I thought it was a great outcome. And we're probably going to get close to 100 once we close in, in March. So overall, we, we're now managing around 100 million dollars. That's the AUM. Okay, so 9, 23, and then 75 plus, you know, so it'll be 100 and some change then. Yeah. Um, and, and and it's not so. It sounds like you're you're. Do you think it's it was easier because it was fun three? The mechanics of how we did it helped a lot, but also it helped that it was a fun three and not a fun one or fun two, right? Because fun three, there's now some realizations from fun one, so it's not just paper gains, and fun two has some paper gains. So the mixture of those two were good, and also we started racing in October two thousand twenty one, which was before the the whole slowdown. So it also that helped a lot. I think it helped, the mechanics helped in that it showed a lot of conviction in ourselves that we were, from day one, we said, we're going to close in March, well, come what may. And a lot of people say, oh, yeah, everyone says that and they never close, right? So being able to really do that and call them in, in early March to say, hey, we're closing at the end of this month, are you in or are you out? Really put a lot of people to work that had, were just been waiting on us saying, yeah, we're going to come back, saying it's December, they're real close, right? Uh, and that's, that's the biggest learning that, I think fund one and fund two is very similar to pre-seed and seed when you're raising for a company, in which pre-seed is just you know a great idea and that's fund one. Fund two is you know you have some traction, some MVP things going on, but still very early. And fund three, you already have you now have some customers, you have some product market fit, and that's what have worked for us. Yeah, I think that it's founders sometimes forget that GPs are out constantly fundraising from LPs, and it's. Quite a similar process. I'm, I'm realizing, you know, I'm having calls with folks 
you know, we raised our first fund, a rolling fund. You know, we've deployed a good portion of it. It's about it's about 13, 14 million dollars uh, in our first fund. And I'm, I'm just starting to have conversations to roll the, you know, roll the second fund uh, in a more traditional fashion. And one thing that I realized is that it's very similar to fundraising from the standpoint of even more exaggerated, probably where you talk to LPs and it's like, oh, you know, we don't invest at this stage or the check size we need to invest is a minimum 20 and you're raising a 25 or $30 million fund. And, you, you know, maximum you're going to have 10 to 20 percent, uh, you know, of the fund in one with one LP. Uh, and so these are things that there's a striking similarity to fundraising for a fund as, and like you, you pointed out, it may even be harder to raise a fund than it is, um, a, a money for a company, uh, given that like the sense of urgency also is not quite there, uh, for LPs mostly. There's, you know, a lot of the momentum building when you're, when you're raising for a company is, you know, is, is it's much more efficient and effective to be able to run a process and have a hard deadline. But a lot of these LPs, especially if they're managing money for other people, there's there's like there's less of an urgency to 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 go out and just and kind of push through. Um, well, anyways, I'm I'm learning and I'll share my lessons here as we <laughs> we're going to start actually you know fundraising this year. You know, we did pre marketing for our last fund, and and Tommy and the team are are now kind of hustling to to make that happen. So I'm sure I'll tap you for some of your your wisdom here. Absolutely. Been through the process, um, and I'll make it available. With the, all the lessons that with 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 all the listeners here, because it's it's rare that you get an inside look at what the fundraising process looks like for a fund. Like I said, VC is such an opaque business, right? Every aspect of it: investing, fundraising, managing companies. Uh, it's a it's a true apprenticeship company uh, business. No, absolutely. It, it, if we can democratize more access, I think that it'll it'll you know help a lot. Hey there, you might be thinking about how hard it is to build a venture-backed company. Well, I know firsthand, and I made some mistakes along the way. We lost over $100 million in capital gains taxes because of the company formation mistake that I made. I don't want that to happen to you. That's why we built Latitude Go. We provide an optimal offshore structure for your startup, and we do it in record time. And guess what? It's five times less expensive as other options, and we use the same legal documents as the top-tier law firms. To find out more, check out latitude.com forward slash go. Now, let's get back to the episode. Let's kind of carve into some more personal stuff. And, you know, you describe yourself as a resolute optimist and you've, you know, called it an essential entrepreneur superpower. I also relate to that deeply as an optimist. My dad always says there's no future in being a pessimist. (laughs) <laughs> and can you give some examples of optimism being vital for you and for the success of a company that, you know, you've either created or invested in? And, and how do you maintain an optimistic mindset in the face of like the current environment, right? If you're a founder, because it's easy, if you've had some level of success, you know, and, and you know, you, it's easier for you to be kind of optimistic because you're not kind of, your head is not on the chopping block and you're, you're, you're going to probably likely survive if you've been successful already. But if you're starting out as a first-time founder, how do you maintain the optimism? So I'll start with, with the last question. Uh, I think probably a lot of optimism, as you may have read, is genetical. It's genetic, right? You, you, you're born with it, right? Some people are more, born more optimistic, some people are born more pessimistic. So that's, that's something you cannot change. But I think what you can change is, and that's something I do a lot of work with, is 
think about pre-postmortems, right? Like, if it all went to hell, what would it look like, right? And you realize it's not that bad, right? You realize it's bad, but it's not the end of the world, right? Very few things are the end of the world. Besides dying, most things are, are recoverable, right? So I think I start off with, with that idea that the worst isn't that bad, and then just build, okay, so now that we realize that we're not going to die, <laughs> let's see what we can do uh, and, and work from there. Uh, for example, the, the thing about raising a fund, right? The first fund, it was brutal, right? Uh, it was, I think we, we approached 300 LPs and got positive response for five before anyone committed. So just keeping that optimism in the fundraising process is, is impossible, right? And then having to bite the bullet about saying, I was going to raise this amount of money. I'm not going to get there. But if I keep raising, I'm just never going to close a fund. I'm never going to get to investing. So I have to put a, a lock somewhere. Uh, I think that's also, that's very similar in doing fundraising for a company, right? You might be racing for an expansion across the world or whatever, but you have to realize that the time might not, might not be right for that. You might be just able to raise money for maybe opening one or more two CDs uh, and that's it. So I think it, it's, it's like balancing this, this thing we were talking about, whether great entrepreneurs have systematic approach to creating ideas or the, it comes from the heart. I think it's the same thing, right? You have to always dream big, but keep a little bit of pulse on the reality that, you know, I might want to be a soccer player, but at my age, it's never going to happen. So I might as well just content myself with playing on weekends. Same thing, right? You might want to, you know, dominate America, but right now you're only going to be able to do it in Colombia or Chile or whatever. So do that small step, right? Just make sure that it, it doesn't kill your, your final outcome. And I think that that's key, right? That a lot of times you you take some decisions that really kill a lot of a lot of options, and that's the most important thing. You want to be optimistic about how do you take decisions now that are not going to kill your final outcome that you're looking for. I like the "what's the worst that can happen" philosophy. I think that you know, kind of a stoic way of looking at things, and <laughs> you know, it enables you to kind of put things in perspective, right? When you realize that, like, okay, if things completely blow up. And I think that this is one of the things that I think I've, I've learned over the years. I, I guess I can say I'm a little more mature than I was at one point. And it's when you realize that, you know, okay, what you're doing is important, but it's not that important. Um, you know, but it's hard because that conflicts with this, like this drive and motivation of like, you need to think that you're the center of the world when you're building something. And, and then the ego's creeping in and it's like, you, you, you've got to, you've got to, you tie your identity to the success of what you're doing. And then that drives you even harder because the ego is a real thing. So it's an interesting kind of balancing work, uh, to figure out how to like, you know, to, to let those things coexist. And at the same time, if you push yourself to the maximum where, you know, if you, if things aren't successful and you're, you know, you're kind of beating yourself up badly because that doesn't, you know, work. But at the same time, it's kind of an effective strategy because it makes you work harder. So how do you reconcile those two? One thing we're not talking about here that's I think is really important is what's the personal outcome you're looking for out of something you're doing, right? Uh, the greatest entrepreneurs have wealth as one of the third or fourth priorities. They're not talking about robbing a Mercedes Benz or you know, having a weekend home in Europe. They're looking to do something and they know in the end, if it works out, they're going to make a lot of money. So I think a lot of founders don't do this for the right reasons, right? They do it for the financial outcome. And I think those have the hardest time reconciling that, you know, I'm going to have to downgrade my lifestyle and 
that just isn't it's impossible. And I'm kind of thinking about this. What's the worst thing that could happen? You know, it, it sort of draw, drove me that the worst thing that could happen was go back to getting a corporate job, doing you know this horrible, for me, horrible lifestyle of you know reporting someone sending these papers at paper shuffle. You know, uh, so that was like a driver. Like I don't want to go that back to that. So I'll do everything possible in my power to not to go back to that. And that was a, a huge driver for me. And I think you see a lot of also with that some founders, right? There's some founders that are too young that have never had to, to live with these nine to five jobs that are just soul wrenching. Right? That, that you really have to get up in the morning and motivate yourself to go to the office. Uh, I think most founders that haven't lived that, they think that everything's nirvana, right? And, and, and but those founders that have, you know, done the banking jobs, done the consulting jobs, done the corporate jobs. The bullshit jobs, uh, they they know they don't want to go that back there, right? So they will do anything in their power to 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 not get 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 back there. So I think that's a huge driver for them. Massive motivator to avoid <laughs> the the hamster wheel. So you've you've mentioned that you know teamwork or convincing people better than you to join your cause is another key, you know, to to long lasting success. What role does teamwork play in your personal and professional success? Can you share any examples of collaboration? You know how that's played a, a decisive part. You know part of your trajectory. So as you know, VC is a high, it's a non highly scalable business, right? Uh, it's very few people. In, the, the best funds don't scale, right? Uh, so in in my case, I mean the best the best time work I can think about is having had the good fortune of finding Gary as my co founder, right? I think he was the perfect teamwork ensemble. Like we had a lot of similar qualities or values, but we also have very different skills. So I thought that was super helpful, right? There, there are things where he's clearly much better than I am, and there are things where I can help him a lot. And that was basic. Uh, I think our biggest challenge going forward is as we go into a fund forward in a, in a couple of years, is to find those people that are going to replace us because at some point we're going to become irrelevant because of our age, because of our experience, or because of some life change, whatever. So, so I think we, we're still not, not there. I think the original team is there, but we have to think about the future. Uh, when it comes to teams, I think the, the biggest issue with building in more talent to the team is that you have a great companies without bringing more talent, but they're not going to be VC scalable com- companies. Right? They can be great businesses and they're going to make a lot of money, but they're not going to return 25x your fund. To get those kind of outcomes, like the Mercado Libre uh, of the world, you need to have this commitment to bringing in talent that is going to be able to multiply uh, the outcome. Uh, and that's something really hard for a lot of founders to, to think about. Uh, some of them just have some ego trip, like you said, like, you know, how am I going to hire someone that's better than me? Uh, a lot of times, those second uh, hires make a lot more money than the founders. Uh, and it's a, it's a hard also for the founder to say, hey, I'm not the guy who makes the most money in my company. Uh, and so it's, it's a really part of thinking what you want to do in the end, if you want to build something that's VC backable, you have to have this idea about exponential talent. If you if you're interested in, in raising VC money, you might not need to do that, right? It's a, it's another road, and it just works as well. Just to double click on on your comment on the qualities that Eric brings to the table and that you bring to the table, what are the concrete things that make the partnership strong? Where you where you really kind of you know complement each other? I think. Uh, I'm much more curious than Eric is in some things, right? I think Eric has some more hard-defined limits on on what to do, what not to do. I think more open to I'm more open to exploring some things. Uh, 
Uh, and then again, there's some issues where I think I'm more strict than his. Right? So I think that allows us to be flexible and strict sometimes because one thing I think one value we both share that's really important is that we have an open mind mentality, right? So we're always willing to think that we're wrong. Uh, and that helps when you have the other person with different qualities. Because if if we were uh, stubborn and uh, uh, also have these strict uh, ideas, it would be very hard to do some things. Because it would be like, if this isn't square, we're not investing, right? So I might, for me, for example, there's some things like valuation, right? For me, I'm very strictly with valuation. Eric sometimes goes back and forth and saying, hey, maybe valuation is not that important to beginning. So I think that mix of, of, of us both looking at different ways helps. We, we're both very, very similar in the when we think about talent. Like, you know, talent has to be high value, high energy, uh, high vision. Uh, but then again, when we think about markets, I think Eric has a most, more open vision for markets than I have. So it's, it's that kind of complementary. That's not exactly one skill per se. It's not like I do selling and he does operations. It's more about how do we approach analyzing things. Yeah, it's important to understand and identify those things. And, and the amazing thing about partnerships is that, and I've already noticed this with my co-founders, is you know we've been doing this for a couple of years now, but that trust base layer, you know, really grows and you can build on top of it. And then you, you know, when I got to the point with my other co-founders, a lot of times we could finish each other's sentences because we would, we had such, such a deep kind of understanding and empathy. And those are incredible. That's incredible value. That's why second time founders, third time founders that have been part with a team that even if they failed miserably, uh, you know, prior to their new venture, there's so many lessons that are, that are, you know, that are learned. So just to kind of wrap up here, you know, you've got a podcast, right? Uh, with Lucas. Yeah, it started a few months ago. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. How's that going? It's fun. I mean, for me, it's like a therapy session, right? <laughs> I use it as a way to, to bend and think things out loud. Uh, we didn't have any, or at least I didn't have any, any goals about it. But we're, I'm surprised by how many people have, uh, you know, uh, glued into it and really like the things we're talking about. Uh, I think it, it's a great complimentary the way you know Lucas and you know me. Uh, I think I'm much more low-key than Lucas is and that's, that complements a lot what we think. Uh, but at the end, it's also, like I said, similar to Eric, we have both similar values and that's always starting point. But we might have different approaches or different lookouts in life, right? But uh, So yeah, I'm liking it a lot. That's awesome. Yeah. Lucas uh, is, you know, latitude, you know, he's a latituder. He's also an LP in the fund and great, great entrepreneur that is really focusing on bootstrapping businesses, which I think is, is definitely in, uh, in style right now. If you're, if you're, if you're a founder and you've been bootstrapping, you're, you're probably adored because you've been able to manage your cash efficiently. So shout out to, to Lucas. And I'm going to end with a question that you ask on your podcast is what family member do you try to look up to? And and so I'm going to ask you the same question. And I think I have the worst answer for, for this question because <laughs> it's very it's very obvious. It's my mom and my dad for very different reasons, right? Uh, my mom uh, took care of us since we were 10 because my dad passed away when I was very young. So I didn't get to know my dad that well. You know, I have a few memories. But one thing that's very interesting to me is and named after him, right? So he was Cristobal. My grandfather was Cristobal, and so on, right? And we, so we shared the name and the last name. And even though, like I said, I didn't get to know him a lot, there's been several times in my life that I've come across someone from industry 
that they hear my name and they immediately ask me about my dad, right? And the reaction they have when I say I'm their son is really amazing. Like he was clear an upstanding guy because everybody respects him a lot. And that's something that's both something that gives you a lot of pride and something that also drives me to be better, right? To do something. So that's why, so even though I didn't know him that well, I really have a lot of admiration for what he did. For whatever he did, it right, because there's a lot of people that should love him. And my mom, uh, I mean, I admire the way she put her life aside just to take care of us for since we were 10, right? Like that. I admire that a lot. She didn't have, thankfully, economic need to go out and work. But even that, with that, she could have just, you know, left us with a nanny and, and, and have a social life, right? And she didn't do that, right? She was very instrumental in our education, our goals, what we did in life. And I really admire that she was able to do that. You said it wasn't a good answer, but that, that's a great answer. And the fact that you've had the hardship of, you know, I'm thinking about my son who's almost 10, you know, I mean, that's a really, obviously a major gap that, you know, existed. And it sounds like he had some incredible foundations that impacted you for a long time. What, what uh, you know, what were the lessons in the, you know, that's a lot of responsibility, right? When you're a 10 year old and all of a sudden, you know, there's, there's, there's a major gap. What did, what did you learn about yourself in that process? So it's, it's a funny thing, right? Like, for example, I didn't have anyone to show me how to tie a tie right? <laughs> because there was no man in the house, right? So, so I remember going to a friend's house and asking him, hey, can you help? Can you ask your dad to help me learn how to tie a tie because I have no idea, right? So there were a lot of these basic man things that you, your dad probably show you that I didn't have to, right? So I had to inquire. And I think that made me a lot more curious about the world than we have had it handed out to me, right? So... That, that, that was really something I, I, I liked. Uh, I also, so my family has a typical immigrant story. Uh, my great-grandparents immigrated from Spain to Cuba, my grandparents from Cuba to Mexico, and my dad was born in Mexico. And they were able to build something in Mexico that was pretty relevant. So I also had this idea of my dad being this entrepreneur because they always worked for, for their, themselves. We had, they had uh, sugarcane plantations. And that all, all, always made it like, going to work for someone was not something that I would ever imagine doing. Right? Uh, so this entrepreneurial bug, also because I have this figure of my dad as being this thing that I didn't get, have to, to ask, be, be able to ask questions from, but I had this idea of him, uh, really always drove me to be an entrepreneur. And I always thought about being an entrepreneur. And also, I think the other thing that was really important for me was I never saw my mom as being, you know, female, less empowered, Right. And I think that helps a lot in our investments. Eric has a similar story in that his, his mom was very relevant in his upbringing. And for us, when we see an entrepreneur, we don't care if it's female or male or Martian, right? We see the entrepreneur. And I think that really helps us in, in trying to be less biased when we, when we look at companies than maybe some other investors that might have this idea of, you know, women stay at home and they have to have children or whatever. Uh, I didn't have that. No, and, and, and you mentioned, uh, you know, Wolof, the name, you know, the, the, the wolf and that there's, you know, the kind of the, the alpha female and alpha male, um, you know, so there's that, that kind of, uh, you know, example in terms of the name and, and, and having, you know, a really strong kind of mom, mother in your, in your story. Uh, and, and Eric's is, you know, it's, that's definitely like a massive thing that will shape you as, as like a person. And so, uh, we'll, we'll, Congrats on the story of, you know, what you've been able to build up until now. And, uh, you know, I think these are these moments of like difficulty and challenges in your life. You know, they're, they're moments that, 
that really tests you, obviously, and they and they force you to kind of evolve. And it sounded like it made you more inquisitive. It made you, you know, go out and ask for help for things or support. And you know, it sounds like that contributed to your, you know, the person you are today. So, um, anyways, it's 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 an amazing story. And and congrats on everything that you've been able to do up until now. Uh, you know, I, I've we, we've you know definitely a handful of investments that I've seen you guys do. And you know, being that early, you know investor in a handful of, of really meaningful companies. Uh, you know, it's, it's been great. And being able to compete with you back in the day, I remember when you made the transition into investor and I was like, oh, that's really interesting. Like, you know, that, that uh, you know, he's, he's jumping into the investment space and hearing how difficult it was uh, back then uh, and, uh, and how it's changed in the last decade. Uh, so a uh, bright future for Wolof and excited to partner with you at Latitude as, as you know, as we move forward and and hopefully we can co-invest in some stuff together and, and send you so. some great, uh, great deals from the community as well. Excellent. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to tell my story. And I look forward to, uh, to being on, on your podcast shortly here. Of course. <laughs> thank you for listening to the Latitude Podcast with Cristobal Perdomo. Subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast for more talks with great founders and investors like him. I'm your host, Brian Reckworth. Vamos Latam. See you next week.